You've been telling us for over three decades of the dangers of allowing the planet to warm. The world listened, but didn't hear. The world listened, but it did not act strongly enough. And as a result, climate change is a problem that is here now. Nobody's safe, and it's getting worse faster. Hey, sounds like another fun broadcast. <laughs> Welcome to it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. I am a little scared, actually. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. For good reason, I think. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling and uh, laugh-filled edition <laughs> of the Bradcast. Glad to have you here. Uh, <clears throat> Brady Dennis and Sarah Kaplan at Washington Post began their 2,500-word report on the report... This way, more than three decades ago, a collection of scientists assembled by the United Nations first warned that humans were fueling a dangerous greenhouse effect and that if the world did not act collectively and deliberately to slow Earth's warming, there could be, quote, profound consequences for people and nature alike. The scientists were right. They say on Monday, that same body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, described how humans have altered the environment at a, quote, unprecedented pace and detailed how catastrophic impacts lie ahead unless the world rapidly and dramatically cuts greenhouse gas emissions. The landmark report states that there is no remaining scientific doubt that humans are fueling climate change. That much is, quote, unequivocal. The only real uncertainty that remains, its authors say, is whether the world can muster the will to stave off a darker future than the one it already has carved in stone. Over at the New York Times, this was the lead from Brad Plumer and Henry Fountain. 
Nations have delayed curbing their fossil fuel emissions for so long that they can no longer stop global warming from intensifying over the next 30 years. Though there is still a short window to prevent the most harrowing future, a major new United Nations scientific report has concluded humans have already heated the planet by roughly 1.1 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Fahrenheit since the 19th century, largely by burning coal oil, and gas for energy. And the consequences can be felt across the globe, they write. This summer alone, blistering heat waves killed hundreds of people in the United States and Canada. Floods have devastated Germany and China, and wildfires have raged out of control in Siberia, Turkey, and Greece. But that's only the beginning, according to the report issued on Monday by the IPCC, a body of scientists convened by the United Nations. Even if nations started sharply cutting emissions today, total global warming is likely to rise around 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next two decades, a hotter future that is now essentially locked in. Yes, the scientists We're right. And yes, this is very serious, very dire. And the window to do anything about it is quickly snapping shut. We will be uh, speaking with one of those scientists shortly, Dr. Michael E. Mann, who was on the team which won the Nobel Peace Prize for the third IPCC assessment. This one released this week was the sixth. The first, uh, I'm sorry, the third one was back in 2001. Michael Mann will be here to help us make sense of this week's dire assessment that I don't I don't know who comes up with these things at the United Nations, Desi Doyen. But boy, describing the report as the U.N. Secretary General did as code red for humanity. That seems to have uh, done the trick. That got a bit of attention this week. (laughs) Well, yes, and all of the extreme weather events just in the past few months that you've described, all of those do tend to focus the mind. Yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention, but not as much as warranted, I think. Correct. Uh, but at least a, a bit of attention that is needed for this report, even amid amidst the ridiculous news week that we have been having. So I want to get to Dr. Mann as soon as possible, so we have much as much time as possible for him. But yes, it, it is a very busy news week, including what could amount to at least some of the action by policymakers here in the U.S., Um, which the report calls out as absolutely necessary in order to, yes, save humanity itself. We're seeing some of that, some of that, it seems, from Congress. Uh, Everything else kind of seems small uh, in comparison, in truth, because if we can't survive the climate and if we can't solve this climate emergency somehow, kind of feels like nothing else ultimately matters. But, of course... The problem is we can't solve the climate emergency unless we can fix our democracy. So, yeah, that's why we focus on the stuff that we do on this program, the stuff that actually matters. And to that end, some very quick headlines here before we get to uh, Michael Mann, who, uh, as terrible as things are, uh, he always seems to find a a positive outlook. Oh, yes. You know, so that we don't want to jump off the nearest bridge. So I'm, I'm joking about how dark this show is or could be. Uh, but we'll see if if uh, Michael Mann can do that again, can somehow find the bright side even after this week's newest startling assessment from the U.N. Yes. And after everything that he has personally been through to bring this yes. news to the American people, I find his optimism 
refreshing yeah. and uh, also very helpful because obviously uh, pessimism doesn't get anything done. And by the way, when we talk about what he's been through, you know, because he was one of the first scientists to speak about the political necessity to take action. Uh, the threats, the death threats, the the uh, you know efforts to take away his job and everything else that he has faced over the years, yep. um, and said, you know what, this is this important. I need to do it anyway. Uh, so yeah, so if he can stay positive, I think we all can, or at least we can all try. So uh, anyway, as I quickly uh, reference uh, some quick news here, as I quickly referenced yesterday on the broadcast, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been calling for the arrest of Democrats who left the state to avoid a quorum in the uh, state House of Representatives that would allow Republicans who control the legislature to institute new voter suppression laws. Uh, that would, among other things, ban pretty much all of the practices that the state's largest and most diverse and, yes, most Democratic-leaning county, that would be Harris County, home of Houston, all of the measures that were put in place last November to help increase voter turnout there by making it, you know, easier to vote in a state with pretty much the lowest voter turnout rate already in the nation Abbott once elected uh, Democratic lawmakers to be arrested and, in his word, his words, cabined in the state legislature to force them to be president, present to vote on legislation that he and Republicans want passed. That would uh, ban drive through voting and 24-hour voting centers uh, as they set up in Houston last November. It would require new photo ID restrictions. It would allow partisan poll watchers to literally interfere with voting and threaten arrest against any election official who tries to stop them. Well, a state judge had put that mandate to arrest the Democrats on hold pending a hearing in about, in about 10 days. But on Tuesday, the all-Republican state Supreme Court overturned that lower court. And on Tuesday night, Texas House lawmakers voted to allow the chamber's sergeant at arms to arrest, to order the arrest of Democrats who refused to return after ditching the state to uh, try to avoid these voting restrictions. Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan, a Republican naturally, signed 52 civil arrest warrants after the vote, even though, by the way, there is no actual law that mandates that lawmakers be present. Still, now they face actual arrest. Anyway, that vote uh, came just after the uh, state Supreme Court made their ruling. Abbott's office praised the Supreme Court for, quote, upholding the rule of law and stopping another stall tactic by the Texas Democrats. Of course, it is not the rule of law that they must attend. That, even as Abbott and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis over in Florida are busy threatening school districts who do not comply with their authoritarian orders to not, under any circumstances, institute masking requirements for teachers and children as the new school year begins amid a new surge of the coronavirus. Amid record surges in infections, hospitalizations and deaths, including more and more children and, yes, infants who are now being hospitalized with the COVID Delta variant 
And yes, even being placed onto respirators in the ICU. Children's and uh, children and toddlers and infants. Children under 12 currently have no vaccine that they can take in order to stay safe from COVID. So masking is their only hope. As Abbott and DeSantis are helping their own constituents to die. The CDC, meanwhile, is trying to save them anyway. The uh, CDC urged all pregnant women on Wednesday to get the COVID-19 vaccine as hospitals in hotspots around the nation see disturbing numbers of unvaccinated mothers to be seriously ill with the virus. Expectant women run a higher risk of severe illness and pregnancy complications from the virus, including perhaps miscarriage. Uh, and stillbirths, but their vaccination rates are very low, with only about 23% having received at least one dose, according to the CDC. The updated guidance comes after a CDC analysis of new safety data on 2,500 women showed no increased risks of miscarriage for those who received at least one dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. The new advice also applies to nursing mothers and women planning to get pregnant. Get your vaccines. For some pregnant patients critically ill with COVID-19, organs begin to fail and doctors induce labor early or deliver babies by cesarean section as a last resort. That, according to Dr. Jeannie Kelly, an obstetrician at Washington University Medical Center in St. Louis, about 20% of all patients admitted for labor and delivery delivery last week at the St. Louis Hospital, 20% are infected. More than double the rate during the COVID-19 surge in Missouri last year, she said. About one-third of these women are critically ill. Around 105,000 pregnant U.S. women have been infected with COVID. Almost 18,000 of them have been hospitalized. About one-fourth of those uh, received intensive care. 124 of them died. I wonder if Abbott and DeSantis will issue orders preventing pregnant women from getting vaccinated as part of their apparently pro-death authoritarian agenda. Meanwhile, the Democratic governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, who is being targeted with a recall election just weeks from now, he's trying to save lives of children. California will now become the first state in the nation to require all teachers and school staff to get vaccinated or undergo weekly COVID testing as schools return from summer break amid growing concerns about the highly contagious Delta variant. Governor Gavin Newsom announced uh, the new plan on Wednesday. We're now following up today uh, to align our school strategy to the state strategy and become the first state in the country to require that all of our staff, not just teachers, credentialed staff, uh, paraeducators, custodial staff, the bus drivers, uh, folks uh, that are critical to supporting the entire school ecosystem, also submit a verification of vaccination and or submit to weekly testing. A uh, spokesman for the California Federation of Teachers said the union supports the plan, uh, which allows the option for testing for those who do not wish to become vaccinated. Schools are required to be in full compliance in California with the new policy by October 15. 
The governor did not rule out expanding the requirement to students once a vaccine is approved for children under 12 years old. And it's that sort of thing that Republicans who cannot win regular elections uh, hope to remove the governor for uh, in a recall election to be replaced with who actually knows. It doesn't actually seem to matter to the Republicans. Whoever wins the vote, they don't seem to care. There's, I don't know, some 60 candidates vying for the job. Vote-by-mail ballots are now in the mail to all registered voters in the state. I hope that uh, my California listeners will use those ballots when they arrive in the coming days. As we noted yesterday, elections and governors matter. And elections mattered overnight in the U.S. Senate, where Democrats, with pretty much lightning speed on the heels of approval of a landmark bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure package uh, pushed by Joe Biden, uh, as that uh, passed on Wednesday morning with the uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday morning with the support of 19 Republicans, incredibly enough, Democrats then passed after some 14 hours of debate in the middle of the night. The framework for the second part of the package, the much bigger, much more important three point five trillion dollar Democrats only probably reconciliation package. Uh, that is, if Democrats can agree among themselves what should be in that package, it will include much more uh, than the smaller $1 trillion package, uh, including human infrastructure such as the expansion of Medicare and the Affordable Care Act and child care and free pre-K and community college tuition. And yes, a whole ton of stuff to help decarbonize our economy to, yes, help with climate change, to hopefully end the use of fossil fuels as quickly as possible, as climate change is, as we'll discuss in a moment, having a devastating and deadly effect that is now even leading uh, the nightly news on occasion on many nights, believe it or not. I'll, uh, I'll have to go into the details of this uh, infrastructure package as we learn more on upcoming shows. But the news so far is very encouraging on this two part, uh, this this two track package overall to pass the bipartisan bill and the Democrats only bill. Uh, and though I know many think it's impossible, I'm actually a bit more bullish than many on the idea that Democrats will be able to adopt some sort of elections and voting rights and democracy reform in the days ahead. Yes, perhaps even including reform that keeps dark money out of our elections, dark money, for example, from the fossil fuel industry. That would be nice. Wouldn't it, though? Those folks who have gotten us into this disastrous mess to save humanity in the first place. Anyway, I'll try to hit uh, that uh, in, in the coming days, give you my reasons why I'm, I'm a bit more bullish on, uh, on being able to pass voting reform and democracy reform. Um, but I want to get uh, to Michael Mann, who is now standing by to discuss the climate and uh, all of the above, because if we cannot fix that and literally save humanity, I'm not sure uh, much of what else matters at this point. Dr. Mann is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Dixie Fire in Northern California has now exploded to become the largest single fire in state history, chewing through thousands of acres, wiping out hundreds of homes and burning pretty much the entire historic town of Greenville, California, to the ground before our very eyes. The hydroelectric plant at Lake Oroville, also here in California, has now been shut down for the first time since it was constructed in the 1960s due to a lack of water in the lake amid the mega drought now devastating western states. The popular tourist town of Mendocino, California, is almost entirely out of water at this point. The critical Interstate 70 in Colorado is now shut down indefinitely due to recent mudslides in areas that recently burned in the state's own massive wildfires. Of course, it's not just in the U.S. The Acropolis in Greece has been closed to tourists in the afternoons as record temperatures there recently hit 117 degrees Fahrenheit. Scores of massive wildfires in both Greece and Turkey have now led to mass emergency evacuations by boat from both countries amid apocalyptic scenes that appear straight out of the Bible. Sicily just notched Europe's all-time highest ever temperature at 48.8 degrees Celsius or nearly 120 degrees Fahrenheit in Sicily. The Greenland ice sheet just experienced a recent single-day melt event where enough ice was lost in just one single day to cover the entire state of Florida in two inches of water in one day. Speaking of Florida, they've recently experienced a massive toxic algae bloom coming earlier than ever this year, resulting in a massive fish kill on the Gulf Coast. Oh, and just for good measure, Tropical Storm Fred is now heading toward Florida this weekend, the earliest sixth-named Atlantic storm on record, breaking the record set just last year in that historic Atlantic storm season. These, of course, are just some of the headlines that we've reported over just the past week or two on this program and on our Green News Report. As our climate emergency seems to be getting more apparent to just about everyone in the world each day this summer, but it's also just the tip of the iceberg, if you'll forgive the unfortunate analogy. And as the extraordinary, often unprecedented historic climate events of 2021 continue in a summer that I have argued could finally change everything as far as how the world sees our ongoing climate emergency impacting so many of us so directly, this week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, began the release of its multi-part sixth scientific assessment, beginning with a 3,000-word report by nearly 250 scientists from around the globe, synthesizing some 14,000 climate studies. No big deal. The report says that warming is already accelerating sea level rise and worsening extremes such as heat waves, droughts, floods and storms. Tropical cyclones are getting stronger and wetter, while Arctic sea ice is dwindling in the summer and permafrost is thawing. All of these trends, the report says, will get worse unless and even if the world takes drastic steps to reverse course, particularly the release of man-made greenhouse gases due to the burning of fossil fuels. The Earth is now getting so hot, the temperatures in about a decade 
will likely blow past a level of warming over pre-industrial times that world leaders have sought to prevent. According to the report, which U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres described as, quote, code red for humanity, even while he sees a sliver of hope that world leaders could still somehow prevent 1.5 degrees Celsius or almost four degrees Fahrenheit of average global warming, which Guterres notes is now, quote, perilously close. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, noted report co-author Linda Mears, senior climate scientist at the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. The new assessment is meant to form the cornerstone of climate science for the years ahead, arriving eight years since the previous assessment and just months before the next major U.N. climate negotiations in Glasgow in November. Many hope that it may pressure world leaders to increase their current pledges to cut dangerous man-made greenhouse gas emissions, the pledges they made under the Paris Agreement. Right now, with current commitments, the world is said to be on track to blow past the agreement's goal of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius, much less the more difficult target of meeting the 1.5 degrees Celsius that scientists say offers the best chance at avoiding catastrophic climate outcomes. For the record, IPC reports are nonpartisan and they go through a long, intense and transparent review process in which all governments sign off on the wording. The IPCC does not tell governments what to do. It only reports on the science and its impacts. Here to help us somehow synthesize this report and put its warnings and conclusions into terms that perhaps mere mortals who may not be climate scientists might understand is Dr. Michael E. Mann, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications, as well as the books The Hockey Stick and the Climate, Climate Wars, Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, and with political cartoonist Tom Tolles, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. And his newest, I believe, his newest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Professor Mann's work along with that of many other lead co-authors and editors of the IPC's third scientific assessment report a million years ago, back in 2001, contributed to the, to the awarding of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize to the IPCC. Michael Mann, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend, and you know it is always nothing but good news when you are on the show. <laughs> it's great to be back with you, uh, Brad, and uh, <laughs> listening to uh, that uh, litany of um, climate disasters that's uh, playing out right now mm -hmm. as we speak mm -hmm. um, really drives home the point of this report. Uh, you know, if I was going to summarize in one, you know, brief sentence mm -hmm. what's different about this latest report is that now the scientists really are standing on the tops, on the rooftop of the tallest building shouting at the top of their lungs mm. uh, that dangerous climate change yeah. is here. Uh, that's really what this report does. It finally connects the dots mm -hmm. in a way that previous reports haven't, and it does so in a profound way because we're literally watching the disastrous impacts of climate change playing out right now in real time, as you very 
you know, uh, lucidly explained yeah. and described. Well, and you know, I mean, as as I'm sure you know as well as anyone, that was just a short list. That was just the past, <laughs> you know, a short list of just the past week or two. Right. Uh, you know, I was going to sort of ask you uh, for your kind of top line takeaway from this report, but you know, it's a three thousand word report. It's fourteen thousand studies, so it seems to me. Uh, that, you know, the top takeaways may be different uh, for at least four different groups of people in general that you may be able to speak to, Mike. Sure. Uh, the public in general, public officials, elected or otherwise, the fossil fuel industry, and finally, climate scientists like yourself. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, sort of for each of those groups, perhaps you could offer a top-line synthesis of what each of the groups should take away from this IPCC report and, uh, and, and how it has changed, I guess, since the last assessment back in 2013. Yeah, sure. It's, um, you know, to the public, it's, uh, you know, this, this is indeed um, a red alarm. The, you know, dangerous code climate red. change. Yeah. It's code red, as, uh, you know, uh, Secretary General said. Code red, um, dangerous climate change is here. Uh, the question is, how bad are we willing to let it get? For policymakers, you have to act now. Um, it's not 10 years from now, not 20 years from now. We need to decarbonize the planet, our economy, our global economy, as quickly as possible. And again, there's sort of some fortuitous timing here because, of course, this report comes out just as this debate is now getting underway with the Senate having passed uh, this um, infrastructure mm-hmm. bill, which doesn't really do much for climate, but this larger potential $3 trillion reconciliation bill really does have meaningful climate policy in there mm-hmm. that would actually allow us to narrow what we call the implementation gap. The implementation gap is the gap between what politicians are saying like mm-hmm. Joe, Joe Biden, you know, we're going to cut our carbon emissions in half within the next 10 years. That's great to say. It's a great mm-hmm. commitment. But we need policies that can actually get us there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's, a poss- you know, there's, there's an opportunity now uh, with, this, um, recon- not, uh, with this reconciliation bill to actually put in place policies that can get us there. So that's for the policymakers. We've got to act now. Public dangerous climate changes here. We've got to hold our policymakers accountable to act now. Policymakers, you've got to act now. Um, the next group, the third group was... Uh, sort Fossil of, uh, fuel industry. Yeah, bye. You've got to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it, it's time for you to go. It's time for energy companies to stop being fossil fuel companies, and we need feedback on the, what we need from the policymakers. We need the policymakers to make sure that that's going to happen. For example, in this bill, in this uh, reconciliation bill, mm-hmm. at least in the current version that's being discussed, is a clean uh, energy portfolio standard that would require um, utilities to, uh, within 10 years, be providing 80% of the electricity that they provide from renewable sources. So that's the sort of policy that can actually force energy companies away, force you know, literally um, force them to stop being fossil fuel companies and mm. to become uh, renewable energy companies. Mm-hmm. And then finally, for the scientists, um, you know, yes, it is time for us to be, you know, yelling at the top of our lungs from the tallest building. That's what this report does. Um, but it doesn't stop here. So what I would say to my fellow scientists is, look, this um, 
this 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 uh, you know this, this latest IPCC report is a rallying call for the public. You've done a, you know a great service mm-hmm. in providing that, but your job doesn't stop here. You have to now when you interview uh, with journalists, when you write commentaries about climate change. You, you have to frame this not just as an issue of uh, science or economics um, or policy, but this is, this is the defining challenge mm. of our time. Catastrophic climate change is here. The science tells us that we have to act now. And, and scientists, you know, have a responsibility now. This is a defining moment mm-hmm. in human civilization. And, and scientists need to be on the right side. They need to meet this moment, and they need to be out there speaking truth to power um, and calling out bad actors and mm-hmm. using this opportunity that we have to inform this conversation about the greatest challenge that we face. And I should say, uh, Michael Mann, you deserve some uh, no small amount of credit there, to be frank, uh, because, you know, years ago, we've been covering this, as you know, for years on this on this program at Brad blog on our Green News Report. Uh, it was rather frustrating because the scientists would come out and they would say, well, here's our science. We don't want to talk about it. We'll let you guys decide. We're not policymakers. We're just going to show you the science. Yep. And I know you took a lot of heat when you came <laughs> out, so to speak, uh, right. when, when you came out and said it's not enough to talk about the science. We need to explain what this means and what needs yep. to be done about it. And I'm seeing a lot more scientists now. I think, thanks to your uh, the le- your lead here, you know, coming out with these direct warnings and you know, Linda Mears, there's no nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and right. really explaining that. I think you deserve some credit there. Uh, well, <laughs> that's very kind of you. Uh, right back at you. Um, you know, thank you for helping give a voice to the scientific community and doing these. Um, you know, uh, doing these shows where you really provide a long format opportunity to your audience to, to really, you know, to talk about these issues in depth, um, because the more educated um, they are, your listeners are, the better equipped they are going to be to go out and mm-hmm. convince their neighbors and friends and family yeah. members and what, what have you that, um, you know, that this is the, the moment has arrived. This is real. We've got to do something. Our goal is is trying to put these into human relatable terms, which is not easy because you know we're not a science show. Um, but we, Thank God. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. We we try to you know to try to make this relatable and understandable, like you say, something you can take to your neighbors. But a lot of these ideas are quite complicated. Uh, I want to jump in here. Uh, climate reporter Seth Borenstein uh, describes. Uh, the report uh, 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 highlights five different future scenarios based on how much the world reduces carbon emissions. They are a future with incredibly large and quick pollution cuts, another with intense pollution cuts, but not quite as massive. Uh, a scenario with moderate emissions cuts. That's the third scenario. A fourth scenario where current plans to make small pollution reductions continue, and a fifth possible future involving continued increases in carbon pollution. In five previous IPCC reports, the world was on that final hottest path, nicknamed uh, business as usual. But this time, he notes, the world is somewhere between the third moderate path and the uh, small pollution reduction scenario, uh, thanks to some progress to curb climate change. Uh, do you agree with the assessment of, of where we are, that we've sort of gone from the fifth mode 
to somewhere between the third and the fourth and whether any of the potential scenarios highlighted there will actually be able to avoid blowing past that two degrees warming target of the uh, of the Paris Accord, much less the more aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial times. It sort of looks like all the scenarios are not good at this point, Mike. Yeah, so, you know, they, they have uh, sort of taken a more comprehensive approach to, to looking at these different possible future pathways. And obviously there's a huge amount of uncertainty because now you're not just talking about the laws of physics. You're talking about human behavior and politics. Mm. And, and we know how fraught our, our politics uh, on this issue has been in the United States and even in this moment right now where um, you know, the potential for climate policy stands on a knife edge. Um, it, it comes down to whether you know, a, a couple coal state um, or you know, red state uh, Democrats are going to be willing to join with the rest of the Democratic Party to, to get this reconciliation bill through with meaningful climate policy. So there's so much uncertainty. Um, you know, leadership is important. The U.S. is leading once again on this issue internationally. Um, uh, other players are now coming to the table. There's reason for cautious optimism going into this next major uh, climate summit uh, this November in Glasgow, uh, so-called COP26. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's reason to be hopeful that we'll see some, some meaningful commitments. Uh, but then again, we have to keep in mind this so-called implementa- implementation gap. Um, these pledges mean nothing if there aren't policies in the countries themselves to mm-hmm. back them up. And mm-hmm. so that's going to be absolutely critical here in the U.S., not just that we talk the talk, but that we walk the walk and that we get that climate bill you know, uh, through. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some uncertainty here also when it comes to the science, which is to say, and, and this is something that uh, is not that clear, I think, to the typical reader from reading the report, um, there's a fair amount of uncertainty as to what scenario line we're following because of uncertainties in the climate system itself. Mm. Uh, you alluded to the melting of permafrost, mm-hmm. um, and there's the carbon uh, methane, for example, that's released mm-hmm. when that happens. And there's a lot of uncertainty in these so-called carbon cycle feedbacks. That's the fancy term for, as we warm the planet, it can potentially release more of the carbon that it was storing, especially in the form, for example, of methane, and then you get even more warming and even more release. Of. And so when you look at those feedbacks, you can't rule out the possibility that we end up on the highest scenario mm-hmm. line, even if our carbon emissions are starting to plateau, and that's the basis for that more optimistic conclusion. Our carbon emissions are plat- have plateaued. They're maybe starting to come down. They came down last year. Uh, a lot of that was from COVID, but some mm-hmm. of that was from, you know, the growth in renewable energy, the movement away from fossil fuels, the decarbonization of our economy that is underway. It just has to happen a lot faster. Plateau isn't enough. It's got to come down the other side of right. that mountain and, and make it all the way down to zero, the bottom of the mountain by mid-century, and halfway down the mountain, uh, 50% reduction in carbon emissions within 10 years. That's a monumental task. If we can do it, there's a fighting chance we keep planetary warming below one and a half degrees Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. So there's still a fighting chance that we do that, but it requires, um, you know, it, it requires uh, immediate and dramatic action. And even then, uh, a, a sort of somewhat lucky roll of the dice. Mm. Do, 
Do we know, and that's, I guess, uh, the role of the dice here is, is, is part of this question. Do we know, you know, more than 100 countries now are making, have made I- informal pledges to reach net zero uh, human-caused uh, carbon dioxide emissions by sometime around mid-century. Um, that is similar to Joe Biden's hopes of, I think, 100 percent clean energy, uh, clean electricity generation by 2035. That's right. Uh, yep. And then net zero emissions economy wide by 2050. Yep. But do we know even if that is accomplished, if every nation were to obtain what right now sort of is, is feels like seemingly an impossible goal at this point by 2050 to get to net zero, do we even know? If that is enough to avoid what this report is now warning about as code red for humanity, or is that the role of the dice you're talking about? Yeah, that is sort of the role of the dice. There is uncertainty. Uncertainty hasn't been our friend. Some of the impacts are playing out faster than we expected. Just recently, you probably saw these reports about the slowdown of the so-called conveyor belt, the ocean conveyor belt. Yes. Um, And that's underway earlier than our predictions, you know, you know, earlier than the predictions indicated, mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing ice melt, more ice melt, more rapid rise in sea level at, at this point than we expected. We are seeing this um, dramatic increase in these unprecedented extreme weather events that, frankly, go well beyond what the models were really uh, predicting. And some of our own work has involved trying to understand some of the processes that are important in the real world um, that are associated with these extreme events that aren't well captured still in the models. So again, it's that lucky roll of the dice. Mm. Uh, a lot of the impacts are, are worse than we might have expected at this point. The warming is pretty much tracking what the models predicted. That's the good news. The models mm. have done a good job predicting how much warming of the planet we can expect as we continue to increase greenhouse gas concentrations, but the impacts of that warming are playing out in a way that we really didn't anticipate. And that's where that sort of, um, that's where that concern, that's where that that risk um, really lies in the impacts and and how, and our ability, frankly, to contend with them. So the report, I think, you know, defensibly concludes that we can still prevent the worst impacts from playing out if we can hold temperatures below one and a half degrees Celsius. I think the weight of evidence suggests that that still keeps all of this within what you might call our adaptive capacity as a civilization. Once we go beyond two degrees Celsius, you're starting to test that, um, you know, the limits of that adaptive capacity. And once you get to three, four, five degrees Celsius, it's, it's appropriate to start talking about civilization ending climate change boy that's cheery yeah i mean and in a report well, that's that we can avoid that that's right. a critical point that does not have to be our future that's a future of of inaction well yeah. you, you know when you talk about uh well the good news that we're able to find in this report is well our predictions have been mostly accurate about how bad it's going to get. Uh, I actually think I found uh, something that, that might be considered uh, good news in, well, in this just, report. Let me, just yeah. call, let me just explain one more thing yeah. there. And what that means is we're, we're not seeing evidence for this idea of runaway, you know, methane bomb right. emissions from the Arctic and runaway warm. That, that just isn't happening. The planet's warming up at about the rate we expected. That means that those those runaway feedbacks that you sometimes hear people worry about, there's no evidence that those are playing out. That's the good news. The bad news is that 
the truth is bad enough. The, the reality is bad enough. Just warming at the rate that the models have predicted is enough to give us these catastrophic impacts mm. that are playing out. And that is exactly the, the so-called good news that I was going to go to, that, <laughs> it looks, it, that it does look like scientists are easing back on their concerns that we would see these, uh, you know, these ultra-catastrophic yeah. disasters, the tipping points, the ice sheet collapses and uh, so forth, the slowdown of the ocean currents uh, you mentioned, that those are now still possible but low likelihood, uh, even if they can't be ruled out, at least by the end of this century. So yep. there's that. Uh, yep. Michael Mann, w whenever we've talked, you've actually surprised me with your optimism, uh, given the circumstances that we're, we're dealing with here and that we're always talking about. I, I heard you mention on someone else's program recently that despair at this point, the idea that, oh, it's just it's too late to do anything meaningful about it. This whole thing is it's a runaway disaster. Um that that sort of thinking is actually just as bad and destructive as denialism, this uh, sort of doomism, as you described it. Are you finding that more folks who might otherwise be inclined to take action yeah. are now s sort of just giving up at this point? Or, or was your comment there simply a, a reflection of something that concerns you as this uh, often seemingly impossible task presses forward? Yeah, I mean, it's both, and you, I think you've put your finger on it. The, the tragedy here is denialism usually comes from people who aren't going to be on board anyway. <laughs> Let's face it, we've lost them. Um, you know, there is this, the QAnon crowd, the MAGA crowd, people who are just not going to be on board, but mm -hmm. they're actually a much smaller, you know, segment, sector of the population than you might think from the amplified voice that they have on, you know, through conservative media and, and social media. Um, so, you know, the majority of, of people are not in that camp. The, the vast majority of Americans are not climate change deniers. That's the good news. Um, what makes sort of defeatism, despair-mongering, doom-mongering so dangerous is you really are leading to disengagement, not among uh, those who are unlikely to be part of the solution anyways, but among those who really otherwise would be on the front lines pushing for change, demanding mm -hmm. Change and that's why it concerns me so much. It's appropriate, and, and there's some nuance that we need to use here because it's appropriate to point out that if we fail to act, yeah, you know, we're talking about a dystopian world. We're talking about something that's not unlike the, the you know, the post-apocalyptic visions that Hollywood has given us mm -hmm. of a possible future. That's a possible future, but it is not dictated to be our future. And if we do you know, reduce carbon emissions, as the report says we need to, um, and as, you know, experts, energy experts have said, we can. The technology is there. We don't need a miracle, Bill Gates. Sorry. Mm -hmm. We have the technology now to do this. What we need is the political willpower. And if we do that, we really can keep the warming within, you know, a, a level, uh, you know, we, that we can adapt to. It's, there's still going to be hardship. There's still going to be suffering. We're already seeing hardship and suffering. So clearly we're not going to avoid that. But we can keep warming from being civilization ending. There is still a good future that's possible. But that future is slipping away. And the irony is that if the self-fulfilling prophecy of defeatism and doomism, if people really decide it's too late and disengage, then we might not have the political pressure necessary to push us over the finish line. Mm. 
Let me ask you, uh, Michael Mann, uh, two very quick questions because uh, i got to let you go here. But you, you've answered this question quite directly for us in the past. But I, I think it needs to be repeated uh, or maybe even your assessment has changed after the new IPCC report. Um, but I don't, I don't think this is, is clear enough in general. So how much of the warming that the planet is now dealing with is due to man-made activities? Um, it's it's more than 100% of the warming. Um, natural factors have fortuitously actually cooled the planet a little bit, and those natural factors are temporary. They could easily go in the opposite direction. That means that the warming that's taken place had to overcome a little bit of a natural trend that would have been in the opposite direction. Mm. So when somebody says, well, you know, you know, a politician, for example, a climate change uh, contrarian politician, fossil fuel funded politician well you know maybe we're responsible for some of the warming <laughs> that's denialism right there mm -hmm. because no the science tells us we are responsible for all of the warming that the planet has seen over the past century and by the way just turn on your television set to see what the consequences of that yeah. warming now are and and that brings me to my final question i've i've made the uh, argument in recent weeks that the world uh, you know, what we have seen so far this summer, as I detailed just a bit during my introduction there, uh, so many undeniable climate disasters in so many places affecting so many people directly that I'm actually hopeful in one sense that somehow this could be the summer where everything changes. It kind of feels like that could be the case. Uh, do, you, do you sense uh, any chance of that, or is that just me being uh, reaching to try to be hopeful somehow, like, like you, Michael Mann? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I really do think uh, things have changed. Uh, I think our whole conversation has changed. Uh, the youth climate movement has changed the conversation. Uh, the larger discussion about sort of... Um, uh, you know, uh, racial equality, racial justice, and climate justice um, that intersects this conversation. The, it, 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 our conversation has fundamentally shifted. There's been a positive shift in the political winds with the presidency now here in the United States that's supportive of climate action and that is helping us lead again on the international stage. And that coincides with a vision that Mother Nature has given us um, it's a gift, in a sense. As tragic as it is, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. Mother Nature has shown us mm -hmm. what our future will look like if we fail to act now. This report underscores that message at a crucial time, just as we're ready to uh, discuss legislation that might give the United States a chance to meet its obligations. And if we meet our obligations, that will have huge implications for the rest of the countries who are watching us very carefully. So, again, we need a favorable roll of the dice at this point, but with that favorable roll of the dice, we can do this. Dr. Michael E. Mann is the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth, Sci Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He's, off, he's author of uh, more books and uh, peer-reviewed publications than I could possibly list here. His newest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. You can find more about him at michaelmann.net. You can and should follow him on the Twitters at Michael E. Mann and on Facebook at Michael Mann Scientist. 
Dr. Mann, always our honor to uh, speak with you, sir, and I sort of look forward to speaking to you again in the not-too-distant future. You too, my friend. Thank you very much. You bet. All right, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back in our closing few minutes. I'm yep. not sure with what, <laughs> although I think, uh, Des, you may have some thoughts oh, on that yes. conversation with Dr. Mann there. So quick break, and we're back with the delightful Desi Doyen right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Because I gotta have Uh-huh. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, are you implying that we need to have faith? Because let me tell you this, I'm not a big guy for faith. I'm a big guy for confidence and oversight. I'm not big on faith and trust and hope and maybe things will come uh, come to pass. But I did notice you furiously uh, scribbling over there during my conversation with uh, Dr. Michael Mann. <laughs> uh, so I suspect you have some thoughts on, on that conversation. Well, one of the things that he said toward the end that really jumped out at me mm-hmm. was um, the fact that there is a way of looking at this wave of extreme weather disasters as a gift, as he put it, a gift from nature saying, hey, look, this is your warning sign. This is your code red. This is your alarm klaxon saying this is the world that you are creating. You need to act. So I thought that was actually a very interesting way of looking at it. I also want to point out that in the IPCC report that just came out, they did mention some positive things or sort of sort of positive things. Yeah, good luck. One of those things is that they found, they concluded that Big cuts to short-term climate pollutants, things like methane Mm -hmm. from agriculture and oil and gas drilling. Methane does not last that long in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's only, it breaks down pretty quick, much faster than, you know, carbon dioxide, which lasts for about a thousand years in the atmosphere. Methane only lasts a couple of years. And so if we can cut things like methane and cut things like nitrous oxide from from tailpipe exhaust, that that can have an immediate effect in reducing warming, that can buy us some time. And that was, by the way, that was something that Barack Obama tried to do, at least in this country. Correct. To shut down methane leaks at uh, at, at, at wells and so right. forth. And then Donald Trump came in and specifically rolled that back. Right. And Biden is specifically reinstating that. But that's going to take a bit of time. Uh-huh. Um, and then there was one more thought I had on yep. this, which uh, I, I don't remember who said it, but it really struck me as well. Um, was it brilliant? It was brilliant. Then these, it was probably me. Go ahead. Yeah. Go <laughs> these ahead. people said, quote, those of us alive right now are being asked to do something extraordinary. We have to transform society and all of its systems in our lifetimes. We were born at exactly the right time to change everything. And that is something worth celebrating. Well, uh, tough to celebrate that. I know. Uh, But we do have to step up to it. I think this sort of echoes your thought, uh, Desi. Uh, Claudia Tibaldi, a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, uh, who was lead author on the IPCC report, Uh, said things are going to change for the worse, but they can change less for the worse than they would have if we are able to limit our footprint now, noting that every little bit counts. Every little bit really does count. Um, 
so we can all uh, look to that in uh, in our own lives in trying to make changes to lower our own carbon footprint because everything counts at this point. And, it really does. And every vote counts because that is oh, going yeah. to be the next fight um, to uh, prevent Republicans from rolling back all of the work that is being done now. Uh, the midterms mm-hmm. in 2022, when Republicans are plotting right now to sabotage whatever they can to win over control of Congress again in 2022 and, of course, in 2024 when they can destroy it all. And they're doing it with a lot of help with a lot of fossil fuel money that Indeed. is given to those people. Indeed. So it's going to take a wave of voting to overcome all of that fossil fuel money and all of the voter suppression and all of the redistricting and gerrymandering. Everything on the table, all hands on deck. That's all we have to do. <laughs> I think we it. can do it. Des, you got to have faith. <laughs> My thanks to my guest today, Dr. Michael E. Mann of Penn State University, uh, to my producer, of course, the delightful Desi Doyen, uh, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or you just want to share it with your friends and your family and your coworkers and your enemies, you can always (laughs) download it, and I hope you will, for free at bradblog.com. That's made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Because I got to have fun. I'm gonna have a